This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I think there's a preconception, a widespread misconception that the Old Testament in general, that a book like Judges, uh, functions and operates something like a kind of history lesson um, mm. where uh, it it's sort of contains um, a scattershot of moral lessons on how to behave, uh, where the main idea, the main sort of rhetorical edge of the text that aims to impact the reader is something like um, try hard to outperform the characters that you see on the page, right? Here is, here are, here's a laundry, laundry list of characters doing this, that, and the other, and you, the reader, are going to read, read about these particular people, and you're going to assess them uh, as to their good and bad behavior, and then you're going to go home and you're going to try to do a little bit better than they are or they have done uh, in the past. And I don't think that that's how the book of Judges operates. I don't think that that's how Old Testament narrative in general uh, mm -hmm. preaches. Uh, but it's a, it's a widespread misconception. Uh, and it's, it, I think for people, it, for a lot of people, they find that um, relatively boring and rightly so. And so they skip the content that's there. Um, just sort of leave it aside, maybe take a cursory glance and move on to what they perceive to be the good news that is lying elsewhere mm. in the Bible. But I think this book is good news. It's very difficult. It's very demanding literature. Um, and it depicts some atrocities. Uh, it really forces you to look evil right in the eye. Um, but it's ultimately, I think, a life-giving book. But that's a that's a difficult claim. That's not necessarily an intuitive claim uh, for a lot of people. So, so sort of inviting inviting readers into a space where they can appreciate how difficult, how grotesque the book is, how um, ugly some of the scenes are, and yet can be prophetic good news at the same time. That's a that's a difficult line to walk, but that's that's what I that's what gets me up in the morning. So right. Yeah, the name of the book you're referring to is Gift of the Grotesque, a Christological Companion to the Book of Judges, where you explore in all kinds of roundabout ways. Um, so even as you open the first couple uh, pages of each chapter, I kept thinking, I wonder where he's going to go with this. Uh, you know, usually you like to think like, oh, I see what you're doing here. And the, yeah, I, the, at least the first few paragraphs every time I was like, I don't know what he's going to do here. Uh, kind of remind me of Gary Anderson's work a little bit. Um but you say, uh, towards the end here, you say, Judges remembers a theological dark age, a nightmare in which even time bends to Israel's theological and social chaos. So uh, what? why a theological dark age? I mean, it's an interesting phrase. Uh, uh, I, and just to be fair, for people who are listening who maybe have not read Judges closely or recently— uh, why is this a nightmare? Uh, I mean, I think it's worth talking about what is grotesque because I think if you just went to children's church, uh, 
uh, <laughs> you might not have ever learned actually what is going on, uh, that, that darkness in judges. Yeah, that's true. If you, if you only go to children's church, uh, you're either going to miss the book of judges, uh, entirely, or, uh, you're going to hear it, uh, sort of reduced or pigeonized to a series of moralisms. And then there may be those parts of judges that, uh, uh, the Sunday school, the child in Sunday school who has a Bible and is sitting down at the end of the road row uh, in class flips open and turns to his or her buddy and says, hey, did you know that there's a story in here about an Israelite judge who, who, who shoves a, a, a knife through a fat Moabite king's belly and then his excrement comes out the other end? Did you know that that's in there? Uh, and so, it's, uh, so, so there's a kind of titillation uh, for the Sunday school uh, right. student. Um, so there's a lot of parts of this book that are, uh, that depict just absolute barbarism. I mean, real, really difficult stories of violence. Um, there's gang rape, there's murder, there's civil war, there's child sacrifice. The very first story in the book of judges, the very first little vignette is a story about a Canaanite King who has his thumbs and big toes hewn off. Um, so violence is, is right there uh, in the front of the imagination of this book. And it's got to be reckoned with. It's a part of virtually every story. Um, even, those, even those stories that are uh, most easily sanitized, like the Gideon story, mm-hmm. which is regularly uh, taught as a kind of uh, be brave, sort of moral, be brave like Gideon. Well, right at the center of the Gideon story is a beheading. Uh, it's sort of Gideon's story devolves into idolatry and Israelite and Israelite violence, and then really pretty much implodes in his son, a biblical story in chapter mm-hmm. nine. So there's no, there's no story in this book that you can really get away from uh, uh, difficult depictions of violence. Um, the other part of your question, why, why is it a, why is it a nightmare? I think you asked. Yeah. So, so this is the dark age. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, th- I think you've described a little, a few of the nightmarish elements, but, um, I think I'm getting at, are you, are you, are you saying it too strongly? I like to say really provocative things about the old Testament, but sometimes people are like saying, you're going too strong. I'm like, I read this every semester with students. I don't think I am. Oh, I noticed that from listening to your previous episodes. I, I yeah. noticed that. Um, is it too strong to say it's a, it's a theological dark age? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, and a nightmare at and, that. Yeah, I. Uh, I mean, this is God. I love the phrase you use: "the wind of God," right? That presses and forces and pushes. And yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't think so. I, I. I mean, I think this is. I think this book is written up to be dystopian literature. There's a point in in my own book where I compare it to uh, 1984 by George Orwell. Now, there are some fundamental differences between a modern humanist dystopia like 1984 and this sort of dystopia, which is, um, uh, liturgical narrative prophecy, theological literature, fundamental differences, but there are some similarities, uh, in that the, the, the book of judges is, is, uh, it, it depicts uh, a world that has gone haywire, a kind of inverted world, a kind of, um, world that is uh, deeply askew from the things of God. Uh, and, and it's always surprising to me in my own experience teaching students. Um, it's always surprising to me to find out how 
for, for how many students the idea that the Bible can depict what mm. it does not promote that that's a that that's uh, that's news. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but why should we be surprised that the Bible can do this? The Bible does this uh, r- regularly. Does this? Why should we be surprised um, if we're we're accustomed to uh, watching television, reading novels, uh, wa- see movies in the present that depict all kinds of horrors, right? and we don't think necessarily or automatically that when we see a depiction of gratuitous violence on television or in a movie uh, that 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 uh, that that piece of literature is necessarily or automatically promoting that kind of violence. Sometimes it is, but very often yeah. it's depicting that sort of violence precisely so that you would be horrified by it because there's something mm-hmm. in the experience of being horrified by the violence that hopefully will sensitize us to it. Um, the Bible can do the exact same thing. It, uh, it is depicting a world after Joshua and before the rise of the Israelite monarchy that has gone um, deeply, deeply haywire. And when I say that even time bends, or the reason I I think the language of a kind of dystopian nightmare is not too strong, is that in the construction of the book, the the first two chapters and the final five chapters have been written up in such a way that the reader cannot be sure where he or she actually stands in the sort of historical sequence, the timeline mm-hmm. of Israelite history. Right? It, would be, it would be so easy uh, just to move on from Joshua and then have kind of discrete dates given to us and then, ah, in such and such a date, then we mm-hmm. get the rise of the monarchy. But that, in fact, that's not what we get, uh, much to the historian's chagrin. I'm sure they would like the information. Uh, but what we get instead in the book of Judges in the first two chapters, uh, the very first verse says that, says after the death of Joshua. So we're, we're launched forward after the book of Joshua, but the very first, or one of the very first things that we learn about in the book of Judges is a story that verbatim shows up in the book of Joshua. Mm-hmm. So right there in the first chapter, I'm confused. I don't know where I am. Am I, am I uh, in, in a world before the death of Joshua, or am I living in a world after the death of Joshua? The book of Judges explains um, uh, the, uh, in the sort of the, the sequence of um, Israel being unable to uh, fully possess the land, uh, the, the book of Josh or the book of Judges identifies the reason for that failure. It sort of pins the blame on the generation that follows Joshua, right? But it also says it also then explains that that. That's the reason why God left the Canaanites in place during Joshua's right. day. <laughs> so wrap your head around that. Yeah. The test. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. that's a very very difficult for a modern reader or any reader of any of any age. That's very very difficult to get their heads around, right? Um, and and features like that in the first two chapters throw you into a kind of temporal uh, mud puddle. You, you, mm. you really don't know where you stand. And the same thing is true when we get to the final five chapters. We don't, we don't move on from Samson. We just get a series of stories uh, that, are, that uh, in some ways look for all the world like they're straight out of chapter one. And, mm. uh, and so, we're, so we're forced to ask, are, am, am I thrown back into the world of chapter one? Have I moved on? There isn't, in other words, uh, the, the text, I think, has been 
intentionally constructed to confuse the reader's sense of time precisely so that the reader uh, would understand that progress mm -hmm. is not happening in this part of the Bible. There is no human progress to be made in the book of Judges. It's a catastrophe. It's a theological catastrophe for Israel. It's a social catastrophe for Israel. It's a political catastrophe. Everything has gone wrong in this yeah. part of the Bible. The, the really difficult question is to understand why literature like that could be transformative for its reader. So let me give you the, I, I was going to say problem, but the issue I ran into when I teach, and of course I get like one week for judges um, in my introduction classes. Uh, and what I ran into was students would tell me, here's what I learned about judges is at a worldview weekend or something like that. Uh, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Hence, moral relativism is wrong. And so you have uh, judges who are making ethical or unethical decisions uh, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. This is moral relativism. Don't be a moral relativist. And I'm like, I'm not sure that this is more moral relativism. First of all, mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's a morality play in that sense. Um, but there really is this no wrestling with uh, the, the kind of sense where the narrator of judges all uh, across all the sections of judges really wants to take, it seems like they want to take you all the way down uh, very much. I, in fact, I struggle to find any piece of literature in antiquity that's anything like the book of Judges itself. Um, but when I watch The Sopranos or Mad Men or Breaking Bad, uh, that kind of like, let's let's show you what it looks like when it goes all the way down to the very bottom. I, I feel resonance there. I think, so I, I wonder if you, when you say it's formative, I think, your average Christian thinks scripture is formative, then it tells you what is right and is wrong, tells you what to do or what not to do, or shows you pictures of righteousness and unrighteousness, and then you choose the righteous path. Uh, you seem to have something completely different in mind here for judges. That's a great question, a <clears throat> great observation. Um, I take my cue from uh, these last few verses of chapter two in the beginning of chapter three. Uh, this is a place where the book tells you overtly uh, that, that the, uh, the sort of ideal conquest of the book of Joshua essentially has been abandoned by God. God has moved on. God's seeing the sort of waywardness of the Israelites. God has moved on. What's, what God's going to do, the narrator tells us, what God is going to do henceforth is that every subsequent generation uh, after the, uh, the generation of Joshua is going to be tested in some way. So what we're reading about when we see this cycle unfold, this, uh, the, the iteration of the judges on down the line through Samson, what we're, what we're looking at, the text has already told us what we're looking at. We're looking right. at a series of testing. And I think and one of the axioms of um, uh, biblical scholarship, Old Testament scholarship, is that form equals function. I think that the, the form uh, there that we can see at the end of two, the beginning of three, is a clue to the rhetorical function of the text as 
liturgical narrative hmm. prophecy. You too inhabit the generation after Joshua. Every generation is the generation after Joshua. No generation is the ideal generation that inhabits the, prop- the promised land. Every generation is, you know, east of Eden, <laughs> exiled from the promised land. Every generation uh, uh, finds itself in a position of, of, um, of exile, divestment. Um, and and uh, as the book is going to depict a kind of testing of the Israelites, and, and I interpret that word as a kind of, uh, I think the Christian word for that is sanctification, hmm. kind of holy pressure that is put upon the generation to see what they will do so that they will be transformed. Um, the, every subsequent generation of readers finds themselves in the exact same position after the death of Joshua. And I think, and, and, and what I mean, or the, the, the importance of that is that I think that the book and its series of you know, judges who are more or less successful and, you know, more or less problematic, uh, each one of those stories is designed to uh, uh, sort of cultivate um, a, a, an experience of, of sanctifying transformation mm-hmm. in the heart of the reader. Um, it, it, this, this book takes you, takes you deep into the pit of sin. It takes you down deep into hell. It takes you right down deep into um, a moral, social, theological dystopia, as we've been talking about. Uh, it makes you look evil right in the eye uh, and reckon with the fact that you're capable of it, that you're complicit in it, that you are a part of every subsequent generation, um, uh, that you're not, uh, you're not special in any respect. Hmm. And what it does there, what the text does there is it, it doesn't, um, and I get this not only from the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, but also from my my understanding of what what the Old Testament is, what it's been written up to do, um, what it means that it has been crafted to play the role of Scripture in the life of its reception community. What the book does when it brings you down deep into the into the deepest darkest pits of hell itself is it it's designed to break your heart. Hmm. Um, it doesn't, it's not designed to wag its finger at you. Uh, there, there, and I think that's actually, um, uh, this idea that the, that the old Testament, because it is characterized by law, uh, that it is therefore, um, mm-hmm. Jewish and therefore, uh, it wags its finger at you. It kind of cajoles you into better behavior. Um, that comes from, a, a form of anti-Semite, anti-Semitic Marcionism, right? Uh, the, the text, the, the text in drawing you deep down into hell doesn't wag its finger at you and tell you to to try harder to outperform the characters. What what it does down, what it does to you down deep is that it it finally breaks your heart. It softens your heart. Um, it 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 brings to light your complicity in an idolatrous economy. It, it um, shows you graphically just how capable you are of the atrocities that are on stage. 
And it breaks your heart because that's the first step in transformation. This is precisely what the prophets mm-hmm. are doing in, in Isaiah, and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. This is what prophetic literature does. is It, it takes sin, holds it right up to the reader's face so that the reader's, so that the reader, reader's heart would be broken, uh, so that they would be transformed and that they would live ultimately so that they would live differently. But it doesn't, it doesn't do that by wagging its mm-hmm. finger at you. What causes people to to flip allegiance right to Baal Asherah outside of merely just saying, "Oh, I used to believe Yahweh in my heart, mm-hmm. but n- now I, I've turned to this other god." Uh, I mean, I think it's more for for us that tends to be an intellectualism, mm-hmm. or what we might call a spiritual battle that makes me skeptical of Christianity or skeptical of some other religious tradition or belief set. Uh, it doesn't seem to be that's what's driving a lot of. Israelite behavior, uh, mm-hmm. uh, their their idolatry here. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> this comes up, uh, I suppose, a bit in the book. Um, it, it judges the book of Judges is absolutely about idolatry. Uh, it, it's the chronic problem that is driving every subsequent you know, sort of wave of um, faithlessness. I I don't claim to be an authority on. Idolatry. I don't really know. I'm sure there's plenty of other people that you could you could interview that would be much better qualified to talk. You know, have, have done deep studies of uh, idolatry. But um, there's there's a couple different things to say about this. I I th- I think that at the heart of idolatry is the the desire to 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 be in control, to be materially in control uh mm-hmm. of the divine right to have a kind of hand an actual shaping hand in uh, uh what religion is and uh, this comes up in um in the book of isaiah uh isaiah 44 i think it is uh, he's right, ridiculing right. Yeah. the idolater right and he says Beautiful you know, how, how foolish of you you, you cut down a tree, one half of it you carve an idol out of, uh, and the other half you burn in the fire. Um, that, that, there's a clear sort of intellectual uh, critique there of what idolatry is, how foolish it is to worship this thing that you have just made. Um, so you could ask the question, why on earth do, do the Israelites, why are, they, why are they so beguiled? You know, generation mm-hmm. after generation, how, why, are, why is the human species so beguiled by idolatry? Uh, I think idolatry, it, it appeals to the affections. It appeals to the appetites. It's uh, the desire for self-determination, uh, the desire for, uh, to be the master of one's own fate, the desire to be in autonomous control. Um, if we're if we're thinking of idolatry along those lines, then I think I think an important theological horizon or rhetorical edge in the book of Judges is to expose that and to throw you, the reader, as a member of every subsequent generation after Joshua to throw you back upon the living God as a dependent creature. Um, idolatry is, idolatry is substance abuse. Mm. It's, it's, it's to take something that is not God and to, and to misuse it is to use it for something 
for a purpose for which it was not created. It's a, it's a confusion of material reality. It's a theological confusion of material reality, and it's a material confusion of theological reality. Uh, it's it's to get those uh, mixed up and, and mm. uh, muddled with each other. Um, so if we're thinking about it as a kind of substance abuse, um, uh, you could almost you can almost see Israel as uh, addicted to it in the course of the book of Judges. It's not it's not that they uh, it, being addicted to something has a lot less to do with the intellect or whether or not it's a good choice, but uh, it has everything to do with psychology and the appetites. And I, th- mm. I think I think idolatry appeals to that part of us. We we want to be able to hold it in our hand because if we can hold God in our hand, then we can put God away when it is convenient to do so. <laughs> mm. uh, we can we can put him on the shelf. We can uh, sort of manage God. I think that's the heart of idolatry and why it's so it's so paramount. It's why it's foremost in the law. Um, don't worship idols. Don't, no graven images. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, the combination of those two important laws at the top of the Decalogue, that, that is the heart of good religion, is, is um, becoming a person open to a dynamic God that is not under your control. Hmm. And I mean, I think you can see, well, a couple of things. You can see Israelites who began using even their their sacrifice and worship to Yahweh in in this this religious manipulation way, right? Where they just say, "Oh, we just have to give these sacrifices," and the prophets come in and say, "Even though you bring these sacrifices, you miss, you know, you grind the poor into the dust, right?" And they say, "There's something more going on here." Um, I wonder then also kind of. Sh- jumping ahead to the end of the story, or at least before the exile, you get these little shocker statements and in, in the end of Second Kings. And then again, in Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, they're doing Sukkot and Passover. Such things were not done since the days of the du- judges. And you're like, well, wait, what, what, <laughs> what happened uh, in the days of the judges where, you know, do you, do you think you're also seeing the demise of something like a Torah practice of ritual in the book of Judges as well? Like, does that get evacuated during this period? <laughs> um, there's a, th- th- that might be a subtext. I think that might be a subtext, especially in the final five chapters. Uh, hmm. It's interesting about the five, final five chapters, right. um, 17 through 21. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did the right in his own eyes. What's strange about those final five chapters is that in the operation of society, what we don't see depicted amid all of the atrocities and the civil war, there's a gang rape and a brutal dismemberment. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough literature, right? What we don't see, though, is pure anarchy, a total mm. sort of disregard for the law, a kind of complete abandonment of the law. Mm. What we actually see are depictions of Israelites taking the law into account, but having no idea what to do with it. Right. And it's almost as if the hermeneutic lens is missing. 
uh, knowing how to apply Moses in everyday situations seems to be beyond Israelite capacity. Mm. So there is there is a kind of evacuation um, of of Torah, but it's but there's a kind of residue that lingers about the book. Yeah. Uh, but it but it's uh, it's sort of deeply deeply confused. I mean, the, so in chapter twenty, for example, um, the uh, in the wake of the of the story of the Levites concubine, the Israelites are trying to figure out what to do. And, and they, uh, they say that what they're going to do is, uh, sort of burn away the evil in Israel. That's, that is Deuteronomistic language. That's right out of the book of Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. They're going to do what Deuteronomy says. And yet it, it appears that without a King, they're completely at a loss of how to do this. Every solution seems to just mushroom into something worse without a King. Right. None of it, none of it, uh, takes shape in a life giving way. Uh, and that's a, that's a clue to the overall rhetorical and theological horizon of the book of judges. Uh, we all know that human Kings are also a catastrophe and a disaster, but at the, at the center of a form of transformational faith that uh, uh, disabuse, where one disabuses oneself of idols and embraces the mystery of a living God that cannot be controlled by you is, is a, a sort of foregoing of autonomy, a foregoing mm. of the right, the American right to self-determination, this idea that uh, I can, I can, um, be who I want to be. I can, I can, uh, determine my future. Um, what matters, uh, most about me is, is what I say that I am. Well, all that is going to get burned to a crisp when you walk into the throne room of the King of Kings, Mm. it just melts off like, 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 um, like, like those, like like slag, like, (laughs) <laughs> like those folks that looked into the ark in, in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? They're, your face <laughs> melts. You walk into the throne room of the King of Kings and right. your face melts off. Yeah. Uh, that's, what, that's what it's like to stare into the heart of this mysterious God and to the numinous presence of God, uh, in, in, to, to look at a God that is, that is not an idol, basically. Um, yeah. No, that's, that's great. I mean, I was, it's funny because I was just thinking that this, this American religious concept, not Christian, but like the American religion mm-hmm. of self-determination, the words, as you were saying that word, Joshua's choose this day, you know, and the, the American in us goes, uh-huh, choose this day whom you will slave to, right? <laughs> uh, whom To whom you will be a slave, right? Um, and I think that captures it great. I, that's a, also, I want to revisit, I don't want people to miss what you just said, also that insight about the residue of the Torah. So there, there are elders of tribes making all of these big, essentially national decisions that create, that beget catastrophe after catastrophe. Cause you have to get to the end. You're like, wait, where did we get to the point where we're actually telling men to go steal wives? Uh, and then when their fathers come, we're going to be like, well, you didn't want to give them up, you know, like it's, it's like, uh, Jephthah's vow after Jephthah's vow after Jephthah's vow, uh, at a national level. It- I think one of the confusing things about judges, and this just came up in a class I was teaching today with students as we were dealing with this refrain at the end of the book of judges in those days, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did the right in his own eyes. The question always comes up. 
that uh, that kingship in First Samuel, First Samuel eight, is itself seen that the request for a monarch is seen as problematic, even sinful. Right. And then you look at the the, the history of the kings, and, and you know even King David is killing off Uriah, and the and the human kings in the Bible present no better solution to Israel's mm-hmm. problems than the judges did. So, uh, so why should the book of Judges promote kingship? Is it just sort of a, a relic left over from a pro-monarchical point in uh, pre-exilic Israel that was sort of left in and, and we, mm. uh, the text essentially knows better by the time you get to Kings and then onward into other books that kingship, well, kingship really didn't work out. And it's just a kind of uh, relic of this sort of propaganda uh, and I think that's uh, I think that's misguided for a number of different reasons uh, at an authorial level because the text uh, all parts of the Old Testament are are going through processes of revision and uh, and recrafting uh, uh, and the people who finally wrote the Book of Judges certainly knew that human kingship uh, was a dead end right that it human kingship. Um, ends in catastrophe, just like just like the, the 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 judges do. So why leave that in, right? Why leave in the idea that that Israel needs a king if human kings are also a dead end? And it's because I think it's because uh, the text is is uh, pointing the reader out and away from him or her self. It is trying to lift the reader's consciousness beyond the self-contained ego, that the, the necessary puzzle piece for life-giving faith in Israel is to acknowledge that you are born on the same day as the rats and the worms. You are born on the same day as the rats and the worms, and you are, you are de- utterly dependent on a power outside yourself. <laughs> you got to have a king. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you must release your uh, your your pretense uh, and, and your hope for self determination. You must release your autonomy um, to to uh, ultimately to uh, God as King. And I, I think that's at the, the sort of the heart of the spirituality of the Book of Judges. Well, Dr. Daniel Sulak, thank you so much for your wisdom and your time today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.